evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. 3. Morning. As he awoke, he perceived drowsily that the room had at the same moment become dense with sunlight. The ebony panels of one wall had slid aside on a sort of track, leaving his chamber half open to the day. A large man in a white uniform stood beside the bed. Good evening, muttered John, summoning his brains from the wild places. Good morning, sir. Are you ready for your bath, sir? Oh, don't get up. I'll put you in if you'll just unbutton your pajamas. There. Thank you, sir. John lay quietly as his pajamas were removed. He was amused and delighted. He expected to be lifted like a child by this gargantuan man who was tending him, but nothing of the sort happened. Instead, he felt the bed tilt up slowly on its side. He began to roll, startled at first, in the direction of the wall, but when he reached the wall, its drapery gave way, and sliding two yards farther down a fleecy incline, he plumped gently into water the same temperature as his body. He looked about him. The runway, or rollaway, on which he had arrived had folded gently back into place. He had been projected into another chamber and was sitting in a sunken bath with his head just above the level of the floor. All about him, lining the walls of the room and the sides of the bottom of the bath itself, was a blue aquarium, and gazing through the crystal surface on which he sat, he could see fish swimming among amber lights, and even gliding without curiosity past his outstretched toes, which were separated from them only by the thickness of the crystal. From overhead, sunlight came down through sea-green glass. "'I suppose, sir, that you'd like hot rose water and soap suds this morning, sir, and perhaps cold salt water to finish.' The gentleman was standing beside him, Yes, agreed John, smiling inanely. As you please. Any idea of ordering this bath according to his own meager standards of living would have been priggish and not a little wicked. The gentleman pressed a button and a warm rain began to fall, apparently from overhead, but really, so John discovered after a moment, from a fountain arrangement nearby. The water turned to a pale rose color and jets of liquid soap spurted into it from four miniature walrus heads at the corners of the bath. In a moment, a dozen little paddle wheels, fixed to the sides, had churned the mixture into a radiant rainbow of pink foam which enveloped him softly with its delicious lightness and burst in shinings, rosy bubbles here and there about him. "'Shall I turn on the moving picture machine, sir?' suggested the gentleman deferentially. "'There's a good one-reel comedy in this machine today, "'or I can put in a serious piece in a moment, if you prefer it.' "'No thanks,' answered John, politely but firmly. 
He was enjoying his bath too much to desire any distraction. But distraction came. In a moment, he was listening intently to the sound of flutes from just outside, flutes dripping a melody that was like a waterfall, cool and green as the room itself, accompanying a frothy piccolo, in play more fragile than the lace of suds that covered and charmed him. After a cold salt water bracer and a cold fresh finish, he stepped out and into a fleecy robe, and upon a couch covered with the same material he was rubbed with oil, alcohol, and spice. Later, he sat in a voluptuous chair while he was shaved and his hair was trimmed. Mr. Percy is waiting in your sitting room, said the gentleman, when these operations were finished. My name is Gypsum, Mr. Unger. Sir, I am to see to Mr. Unger every morning. John walked out into the brisk sunshine of his living room, where he found breakfast waiting for him, and Percy, gorgeous in white kid knickerbockers, smoking in an easy chair. 4. This is the story of the Washington family, as Percy sketched it for John during breakfast. The father of the present Mr. Washington had been a Virginian, a direct descendant of George Washington and Lord Baltimore, at the close of the Civil War, he was a 25-year-old colonel with a played-out plantation and about a $1,000 in gold. Fitz Norman Culpepper Washington, for that was the young colonel's name, decided to present the Virginia estate to his younger brother and go west. He selected two dozen of the most faithful men who, of course, worshipped him and bought 25 tickets to the west, where he intended to take out land in their names and start a sheep and cattle ranch. When he had been in Montana for less than a month, and things were going very poorly indeed, he stumbled on his great discovery. He had lost his way when riding in the hills, and after a day without food, he began to grow hungry. As he was without his rifle, he was forced to pursue a squirrel. In the course of the pursuit, he noticed that it was carrying something shiny in its mouth. Just before it vanished into his hole, for Providence did not intend that the squirrel should alleviate his hunger, it dropped its burden. Sitting down to consider the situation, Fitz Norman's eye was caught by a gleam in the grass beside him. In ten seconds he had completely lost his appetite and gained one hundred thousand dollars. The squirrel, which had refused with annoying persistence to become food, had made him a present of a large and perfect diamond. Late that night he found his way to camp, and twelve hours later all the males were back by the squirrel hole, digging furiously at the side of the mountain. He told them he had discovered a rhinestone mine, and, and as only one or two of them had ever even seen a small diamond before, they believed him without question. When the magnitude of his discovery became apparent to him, he found himself in a quandary. The mountain was a diamond. It was literally nothing else but solid diamond. He filled four saddlebags full of glittering samples and started on horseback for St. Paul. There he managed to dispose of half a dozen small stones. When he tried a larger one, a storekeeper fainted, and Fitznorman was arrested as a public disturber. He escaped from jail and caught the train for New York, where he sold a few medium-sized diamonds and refused in exchange about $200,000 in gold. But he did not dare to produce any exceptional gems. In fact, 
He left New York just in time. Tremendous excitement had been created in jewelry circles, not so much by the size of his diamonds as by their appearance in the city from mysterious sources. Wild rumors became current that a diamond mine had been discovered in the Catskills, on the Jersey coast, on Long Island, beneath Washington Square. Excursion trains, packed with men carrying picks and shovels, began to leave New York hourly, bound for various neighboring Eldorados. But by that time, young Fitz Norman was on his way back to Montana. By the end of a fortnight, he had estimated that the diamond in the mountain was approximately equal in quantity to all the rest of the diamonds known to exist in the world. There was no valuing it by any regular computation. However, for it was one solid diamond, and if it were offered for sale, not only would the bottom fall out of the market, but also, if the value should vary with its size and the usual arithmetical progression, there would not be enough gold in the world to buy a tenth part of it. And what could anyone do with a diamond that size? It was an amazing predicament. He was, in one sense, the richest man that ever lived. And yet, was he worth anything at all? If his secret should transpire, there was no telling to what measures the government might resort to in order to prevent a panic, in gold as well as in jewels. They might take over the claim immediately and institute a monopoly. There was no alternative. He must market his mountain in secret. He sent south for his younger brother and put him in charge of his staff, gentlemen who had never realized that slavery was abolished. To make sure of this, he read them a proclamation that he had composed, which announced that General Forrest had reorganized the shattered southern armies and defeated the North in one pitched battle. The men believed him implicitly. They passed a vote declaring it a good thing and held revival services immediately. Fitznorman himself set out for foreign parts with $100,000 and two trunks filled with rough diamonds of all sizes. He sailed for Russia in a Chinese junk. And six months after his departure from Montana, he was in St. Petersburg. He took obscure lodgings and called immediately upon the court jeweler, announcing that he had a diamond for the Tsar. He remained in St. Petersburg for two weeks, in constant danger of being murdered, living from lodging to lodging, and afraid to visit his trunks more than three or four times during the whole fortnight. On his promise to return in a year with larger and finer stones, he was allowed to leave for India. Before he left, however, the court treasurers had deposited to his credit in American banks the sum of $15 million under four different aliases. He returned to America in 1868, having been gone a little over two years. He had visited the capitals of 22 countries and talked with five emperors, 11 kings, three princes, a shah, a khan, and a sultan. At that time, Fitznorman estimated his own wealth at $1 billion. One fact worked consistently against the disclosure of his secret. No one of his larger diamonds remained in the public eye for a week before being invested with a history of enough fatalities, armors, revolutions, and wars to have occupied it from the days of the first Babylonian Empire. From 1870 until his death in 1900, the history of Fitznorman Washington was a long epic in gold. 
There were side issues, of course. He evaded the surveys. He married a Virginia lady by whom he had a single son, and he was compelled, due to a series of unfortunate complications, to murder his brother, whose unfortunate habit of drinking himself into an indiscreet stupor had several times endangered their safety. But very few other murders stained these happy years of progress and expansion. Just before he died, he changed his policy, and with all but a few million dollars of his outside wealth, bought up rare minerals in bulk, which he deposited in the safety vaults of banks all over the world, marked as bric-a-brac. His son, Braddock Tarleton Washington, followed this policy on an even more tensive scale. The minerals were converted into the rarest of all elements, radium, so that the equivalent of a billion dollars in gold could be placed in a receptacle no bigger than a cigar box. When Fitznorman had been dead three years, his son, Braddock, decided that the business had gone far enough. The amount of wealth that he and his father had taken out of the mountain was beyond all exact computation. He kept a notebook in cipher in which he set down the approximate quantity of radium in each of the thousand banks he patronized and recorded the alias under which it was held. Then he did a very simple thing. He sealed up the mine. What had been taken out of it would support all the Washingtons yet to be born in unparalleled luxury for generations. His one care must be the protection of his secret, lest in the possible panic attendant on its discovery he should be reduced with all the property holders in the world to utter poverty. This was the family among whom John T. Unger was staying. This was the story he heard in his silver-walled living room the morning after his arrival. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this to feature on the show. Send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)